And the only reason we got that award is because we were clever enough to invite Rebecca Davis for a weekly chat with us. And um, for a reason <laughs> I think neither of us entirely remembers, perhaps you do, why it's called Plan B. Why is it called Plan B, you? Because it was it was my Twitter handle back in the day, but I was still engaging in that hideous forum. Okay, but why was that your Twitter handle? It's because of a joke by the American comedian Maria Bamford who said, people always say, you're a comedian, what's plan B? And I say, this is plan B. Plan A was to become a supermodel astronaut. It, it doesn't really work in my delivery, John, but it's pretty <laughs> droll when she does it. It's pretty droll when you do it as well. Um, I have been away for five days. I've been out of touch with the media, so I have not read the long article on Daily Maverick today, which you wrote about the Solidarity Fund, but it's had a follow-up. Well, allow me to fill you in then, John. Please it would do. be my great pleasure. It has interested me, and I too obviously have been off work for a while on maternity leave, and just how little close scrutiny we, as in the South African public and the media, have given the, the activities of the Solidarity Fund, which is this massive three billion rand fund established by Cyril Ramaphosa, which in some ways has been looked to as sort of the thing that could save South Africa from COVID-19. And I think it's also been one of the really few good news stories to come out of this pandemic, you know, the sense that we were pulling together ordinary citizens as well as corporate political parties donating to this fund, which is by far the biggest local philanthropic fund that anyone can remember, certainly in terms of how speedily it has been endowed, because it's only been about five months and it's got over three million rand sitting in it and presumably counting because they're still very much accepting donations. So I started, you know, picking through the Solidarity Fund in terms of its website and its reporting and particularly in light of what we now know about how the money that was used for emergency PPE procurement from government was channeled to corrupt civil servants, to politicians, to politically connected companies. It seems to me that now more than ever, we need scrutiny of, for instance, the contracts that the Solidarity Fund is entering into. You know, they have very impressive statistics of how many units of PPE they have delivered, of the food they've handed out, of how they've scaled up gender, um, gender-based violence shelters and so forth. But what is almost completely missing, I discovered, John, is any details about procurement. Now, procurement is very boring, obviously, compared to the feel-good stuff about the actual impact you're making. And I don't think anyone can dispute the fact that the Solidarity Fund does seem to have been doing really, really good work. But when I did a little bit of digging and asked them some pointed questions about procurement, you know, which company has been paid for which service? You know, how you say you spent 30 million rand with this pharmaceutical company on what? These are the details that are missing from the only two reports that are out so far. They said, oh, well, actually, all the procurement is done by B4SA, which is the relatively new organization as well, which is an amalgamation of Business Unity South Africa and the Black Business Council. Now, I don't know about you, John, but this surprised me because my sense is that we as the public have put quite a lot of trust in the Solidarity Fund. I think for a number of reasons, you know, it was personally endorsed by President Cyril Ramaphosa. It has some real heavy hitters from the private sector at the top of it. And I don't feel that necessarily we've extended the same trust to B4SA, which is a kind of mysterious body in some ways. I mean, it's sort of nebulous as to who's behind that, etc. So when I heard that the procurement was actually being handled by B4SA, not the decisions made by the Solidarity Fund. I thought that that was strange. And I asked them if they would be re re releasing more detailed reports 
on funding. I still actually haven't got a straight answer out of that. And when I interviewed um, the CEO, Nomkita Gwani, this afternoon and Wendy Chow, the head of engagement, I also asked whether they would be willing to have the fund audited by the Auditor General, which has been suggested is the appropriate body to do this oversight, because even though the fund is not a government entity, it is still endowed with public money, $150 million, and it has very close links to the presidency. Why then would they not allow themselves to be audited by the Auditor General? And they said, in essence, that no, they're not going to allow that. They also don't really have any plans to account for themselves before Parliament. So there's this sense that they... They, the fact that they are ostensibly independent from government, which is also supposed to be their big selling point, that they can act with this agility and speed that government can't when it comes to addressing the, 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 the crisis. But that factor, it seems, gives them also a level of carte blanche from accountability, which I think is undesirable, certainly, at this stage of the pandemic. I mean, $3 billion is a lot of money. And I don't discount the work it has taken them to build as the CEO put it to me, a three billion rand organization in five months. But I think that there are questions that we still need answers to about exactly where that money is going. And we, for a long time, have just taken it on trust that it's going to the right places. Okay, and then I will certainly be looking at that article and perhaps the follow-up tomorrow. Um, I get a, a, a daily email from the New York Times and the Washington Post and other international newspapers telling me about some of the stories that they're covering. And while scrolling through the Washington Post headlines, I saw a phrase which was new to me, toxic positivity. And I'm very glad that I don't have to read that particular article because you're going to explain it to me now. Yes, because I've already read the same article. So it seems, John, that we're living in this time when... You know, the world kind of seems like it's going to hell. There's reports of anxiety and depression surging to almost unprecedented levels worldwide, particularly in places like the U.S., but I'm pretty certain South Africa would be no different, partly as a result of the lockdown, people's loss and illness as a result of the pandemic, and also to a kind of prevailing political and economic instability or even, you know, crisis. People have lost their jobs. And experts are now warning that the way to deal with it is not through this notion of toxic positivity, which basically refers to the attempt to put a positive spin on everything. So constantly reassuring yourself or others, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to work out. It always will. You know, never dwelling on the negative, which is sometimes the sense certainly were given from social media, for instance, endless inspirational quotes and so forth. And it's also stemming, I think, from... Part of the pressure associated with this lockdown, which has been that, you know, oh, there's a wonderful time to skill up, to learn a new language, to develop the best possible relationship with your family, etc. And many of us who have managed to accomplish absolutely nothing during the lockdown other than, you know, wallowing in our own anxiety and eating too much, end up feeling shame and guilt as a result. So the idea is now that in a world that that is, you know, in the grip of a real a real darkness and a real crisis at the moment. You should not force yourself to say things are going to be fine, to think things are going to be fine. Experts recommend instead that you accept negative emotions, that you even perhaps consciously try to let them in and think about them for a while without obsessing about them. You know, John, I don't know if you're familiar with the teachings of the Stoics, which I was looking into a while back when writing my last book on wellness. 
But one of the tenets of Stoic philosophy is that you should consciously try and force yourself to imagine the worst thing that could happen. You know, is it is your worst nightmare the loss of your partner, the loss of a child, losing your job, etc. To force yourself to go there in your head and really think about the implications of that. And as depressing as it might be, the suggestion is that even by contemplating that possibility, you start to deal with the fact that maybe that would not be, in fact, a life-ending event. It sounds morbid, but I've tried it a few times and it works. Don't allow yourself to be bullied into positivity is, is the main thing because it, it does have a toxic element. And I'm also... Yeah, don't, often, be a, don't be a Micawber or a Pangloss or an Eeyore somewhere in between. Correct. I'm often reminded of, you know, the Holocaust memoirist Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, where he writes about being in the camps in Auschwitz, etc. And he says some of the most irritating people in the camps were the relentlessly upbeat people, the ones who said, oh, we're getting out any day now, guys, it's all going to be fine. He said, even in that setting, there was just something so profoundly irritating about these folks. And I think if you can, if you can say that in the middle of the Holocaust, you can certainly say it now. And what about this German law that dog owners are going to have to walk their dogs twice a day for a minimum of an hour each time? I'm very interested to hear what your canine-loving listeners think about this. This is a real law in Germany. It's called the New Dog Act, coming into effect next year. And it aims to prevent dogs from being treated as, quote, cuddly toys, according to the agriculture minister, who also says there's new findings that dogs need a basic level of activity and stimulus every day from their environment and from other animals. And as a result, yes, German dog owners will be required by law to take their dogs out for at least an hour at a time, twice a day. That is a hefty chunk of time. It doesn't actually specify, as far as I know, whether you have to be walking the dog for the entire one-hour period. But it does say... Whether you can walk 200 meters to a park bench and sit. That is possible. I, I was also interested to see that the most popular dog breeds in Germany, I mean, in accordance with, with stereotype and language, are German Shepherds and Dachshunds. And while German Shepherds might love the idea of a two-hour race around the neighborhood, I'm not convinced that tiny little Dachshunds would be so thrilled. The question is, too, how on earth it will be enforced. Will there be these dog policemen knocking on your door demanding to see proof of your tired-out dog? Every dog, dog will but, have to be fitted with a Garmin or an Apple Watch. That's right. The, the authorities have said it will be enforced. How is anyone's guess? But if you have a lazy dog in Germany, they're in for a shock to the system. <laughs> Rebecca, thank you very, very much indeed.